Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Today's episode, we meet Martha Kiris, author of The Sun Is Up, a book that acknowledges white privilege and explores hospitality theology against the backdrop of Charlotte's racial history. Greg Gerald, author of Riff of Love, says that in a church culture that loves its willful blindness, this memoir comes from a powerful white lady who has seen the light and now has an important song to sing. We start with Martha reading about the work that needs to be done, where she identifies what she calls the very ugly, very large elephant in the room. The work. In recent years, as it has become more apparent to me exactly what my work in racial reconciliation might be, I've come to realize two things. That my primary work is with other white people, to help them to hear the message of what I have learned, and that it probably will take a book to cover what I need to say. Let's be upfront about the very ugly, very large elephant in the room. Many white people have been resistant to the real work of racial reconciliation. As a group, white Christians are particularly egregious in their resistance for several reasons, most of which are cultural. One, in order to do the work of racial reconciliation, white people have to participate in uncomfortable conversations, some of which are confrontational, and many don't like to be either uncomfortable or confrontational. Two, white people are tuned in to their own rights. They will not willingly hold blame that they do not think is truly theirs to hold. Because of this, the conversation typically ends when individual white people feel that they are being blamed for slavery, for the Jim Crow, or for other events in the past over which they had no control. Three, white people believe their systems, educational, judicial, employment, and housing, to be fair. When black people tell them about police violence against black people or about bias in the justice and educational systems, white people don't believe them. Whites trust their systems over the words of black brothers and sisters. Four, white people, particularly white Christians, do not like change. My personal experience of church, an institution with which I have had much experience, has been that church people would rather live for years with the roof literally falling in over their heads than have the difficult conversation about how to fix the roof. One thing I have learned over the course of my career is that nothing happens until you have the tough conversation. Delay it, do it halfway, ignore it. However we avoid it, the truth is that progress is stymied until the people in the system, in this case the church, are willing to confront the real issues in hard, sincere, painful, revealing, and honest conversation. Only then can any action occur. Only then will the actions that that are taken begin to move the system forward. The challenge. When my son was still small, he is six foot five now, he was an early riser, a very early riser. He would come into our room where his father and I were sleeping on a bed that put us right at eye level with him. He would lean his face into mine, 
in a way that would have been both terrifying and creepy had he not been two years old. And he would wait quietly until I opened my eyes. When I startled awake and recovered from the shock of having a face so close to mine, he would say, the sun is up. What he meant was, it is way past time for you to be up and fixing me some breakfast, preferably something with sugar and bacon. This is our challenge. The sun is up. It is long past up. We have known that we have work to do and have avoided it for a long time. And even if hearing about it in this way is startling, it doesn't change the fact that it is time for us to act. The time for sleep is over. The sun is most decidedly up. Author Martha Kiris has always been a storyteller. Whether as a Charlotte High School teacher or later as a minister to children and in the pulpit at St. John's Baptist Church in Charlotte, and now as pastor to Peakland Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Her book, The Sun is Up, is part memoir and part lesson plan for how white people need to think about racial reconciliation. But she is just as hard on herself as she is on other white people who have for years thought the problem of race was behind them. Martha completed her doctor of ministry degree at Gardner-Webb University, writing her doctoral paper on racial reconciliation and the theology of hospitality. Before being called to her current church in Virginia, she served on the executive board for Charlotte Crop Walk and was an active participant with Charlotte Habitat for Humanity, QC Family Tree, a ministry working with Enderley Park neighborhood in Charlotte, Charlotte Family Housing, and the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice. Martha also continues an active relationship with the community of South Sudanese people living in Charlotte, many of whom she regards as family. In pursuit of sanity, Martha likes hiking in the mountains, reading books, watching movies, taking walks with friends, binge-watching Netflix, biking, dogs, jeans over dresses, flats over heels, blue over orange, Jesus over Paul, and chocolate over just about any other food. Martha, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. And today uh, we've got a co-host, Sarah Viver. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Sarah uh, is the one who introduced me to Advent co-working and this idea of podcasting and uh was actually in the studio for that first time, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now you're a professional. Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, I'm so and, proud. And, 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 and she knows uh, Martha well, and so we thought, okay, let's bring... Oh, and, and Cher's also a former radio personality, so that helps. You can hear it in her voice, right? <laughs> uh, the professionalism. Yeah. So, Martha, uh, welcome back to Charlotte. Oh, yeah. thank you. It's good to be here. Gorgeous yeah. Charlotte spring yeah. day. Now, you're in Lynchburg now. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, how many years in Charlotte? So I lived in Charlotte from 85 until last year, until 2000, what year was that? 2018. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. okay. I don't know if you need to make religious disclosures in podcasts, but uh, (laughs) I'm a member of the church that Martha was a pastor at, Sarah, too, as well, and uh, St. John's Baptist Church, which she writes about in the book. But uh, before that, you were a high school teacher. I was, yeah. That's what brought me to Charlotte. I um, I grew up in in Virginia, and then uh, I came in 85, I came to teach high school. And you write about that in the book and the challenges that that entailed. Mm-hmm. Interesting career. They gave you the best students, right? Always, yes. <laughs> Hand, handpicked them. Uh, there was a story, I think, in the book about uh, the principal or somebody bringing you a child that someone said they no longer wanted to teach. Multiple times. Okay. Yeah. And you decided to start, uh, what was it you started teaching at the time? It was like a literary fiction you taught uh yeah i taught i i was supposed to be teaching american literature right and i I was supposed to be using the state approved textbook and you you rebel you i did not use the state approved textbook which is why teaching for the public schools and i were not a great match i i was not um to me, I was supposed to be teaching skills and and helping students be ready for for whatever was next, communication and and being able to put put your life in words and to, to hear mm-hmm. other people's words. And oh my God, those textbooks. Yeah. So so explain about the textbooks. I mean, why why wouldn't a, a well-educated woman like yourself, who's following the rules of this system, why why wouldn't you teach? Why, why would you put yourself in such a situation where you wouldn't teach it? Like, why yeah. cause problems for yourself? Right. Well, number one, the important thing um, to know about the public school systems at that time was no one was watching me. Um, oh. no, they, they had no idea what I was teaching the students. This was before end-of-course tests. And, um, 
And I, I don't want to say that, um, you know, nobody was doing what they were supposed to be doing, but my classroom, when I closed the door, there was there was no uh, real oversight over what I was teaching. And, and also, um, you know, I, for, for me, as I, as I started to understand who these young people were, right, whether they were going to college, I didn't get, I didn't get the kids who were like the AP kids. I never taught those kids. Not if the I, high achievers. Even, yeah, even the, even the college-bound students I taught were not the ones who were the highest of high achievers. But you, you actually connected with those kids, right? I did. I yeah. loved those kids. Well, yeah. they seemed to need me. And then you became a minister to children. That's right, right. yeah. You, I, went, you went from a, a, a career where you had three or four administrators micromanaging you to where you had, what? how many mem- members do we have? 500 people in yeah. the church micromanaging you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but they quite <laughs> often didn't know what yeah. I was up to as yeah. well. <laughs> uh, one of the things, and, and you went on to be associate minister, and now you're Senior minister in Lynchburg. That's right? correct. At yeah. Peakland. At, at Peakland Baptist Church. Yes. Now, before we get started on this, um, what some would say is a controversial topic, white privilege, mm. we need to acknowledge uh, that there are three white people in this room having this conversation. Um, is that a good thing? A bad thing? What? I I think it is a necessary part of the process. So. Um, One of the things that happened when I went to Ferguson was we had what they called, we had a group that was made up of white and black people. And we had the white caucus and the black caucus, which was time for the white people to go do their business and talk to each other and time for the black people to go do their business and talk to each other. And what I realized was, so there's this important business of us talking inside our own circle, right? There's important conversations to have with the black community and and for us to have together. But frankly, the white people haven't had our own conversation yet. We have not talked to each other about this. This is something that somehow we think that black people are supposed to teach us. And that is wearying, frankly. Uh, my observation of black people is that, that it, I mean, they want to help us, <laughs> but they're kind of exhausted with having to teach us all the time. Yeah, don't say that. Don't, don't believe that. Um, this is really true. And so one of the things that I think I'm supposed to be doing is conveying to white people, we need to be talking to each other. And, and, and anybody who's learned lessons from their experiences in this work, they need to go to the other white people. And, and when we come to a place of having conversations with the black community, we need to have done our work first so that we're not exhausting them with some basics like don't talk about my nails and my Mm -hmm. hair i want to talk about justice i want to talk about equality so before we talk about some of the themes in the opening read i just need to understand do you have some kind of burning bush moment here with this this whole (laughs) (laughs) racial reconciliation thing Uh, or understanding or i've had a couple um one was the civil rights tour um that i did when i was in seminary where we went to these different pilgrimage sites um, in the South, um, to Montgomery, and um, I, I think every American needs to go to the front porch of Martin Luther King Jr.'s house in Montgomery, Alabama, and put your fingers in the divot where the bomb went off while his wife and his baby daughter were in the house. And at that very same spot, he stood later in the evening and sent the mob home and said, we're not we're not doing this. We're not going to go violence. That, that to me is, I, I, I feel like I need to take my shoes off when I'm there. Um, you need to go to Birmingham and see the 16th Street Baptist Church. You need to see the Kelly Ingram Park across the street. Um, you need to walk across um, the bridge at Selma, the Edmund Pettus, Pettus Bridge at Selma, and, and picture that you come up this, this huge bridge that has this arch, and, and you can't see the other side, and you come to the top of this bridge and picture that on the other side there are these, there, there's billy clubs and dogs, and they're ravenous. They're ready to tear you apart. So I counted four themes here in the opening read white people don't like uncomfortable conversations mm. white people get tuned into their own rights white people believe that the institutional systems are fair 
and white people don't like change, right? So any one of these could derail the conversation, right? That's right. right. Uh, And they're all elements of privilege. You could say that about anybody in any situation where you have privilege. You don't want to talk about it because you don't have to, right? Now, Sarah, you've known Martha for a long Mm -hmm. time. This is a controversial topic. You've known her as a storyteller, a preacher, and a friend. Are you surprised that in her first book she would take on a topic this controversial? Uh, (laughs) No, no, not at all. Now, I I mean— I would be surprised if she hadn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I I knew that, you know, Martha is a great communicator and uh, super preacher, great writer. I, uh, I would have been shocked had she picked something and gone all the way through with it, right, that didn't have a lot of fire in it. Because mm-hmm. you've got to, if you're going to write, you know, you're a writer, if you're going to write a book, you have to have fire and a belief that what you're, the story that you're telling has resonance for you it matters um and that you hope it has some enduring legacy and those are all things that um that i'm very grateful that you brought forth with this book but she's calling us out if she was giving a sermon she might have people squirming in their seats yeah i like i like to squirm yeah yeah. Yeah, i like healing to begin i'm like let's cry that's right pull the band-aid off i want i want i yeah i want us to like you know let's wreck our clothes and let's get on. I'm surprised you didn't pull gender into this too because you got yeah. that. You know, yeah. That's a whole other That's a whole chapter other. for that's the a, second. That's part it, two. It's the, no, it's the next book. It's the next one. So yeah. Martha, did you think this believing the systems are fair is you believe what you want to believe? You, you, you're guided by your own internal biases and how you were raised and... Well, I think the systems have been fair for us, right? Mm-hmm. If the 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 meritocracy um, that says, you know, if you work hard, good things will happen. Well, it it mostly works for for most of us. That's the thing is that's that's been one of the disconnects. Is we I, I think one of the things you have to notice about especially white middle class people is we are hardworking. And we we have we work hard every day, and we believe in education, and we've gotten our educations, and we we get up early and go to work. We, you know, we we spend a lot of time on our kids, and it, and it's successful for us. So we believe that that's across the board, hmm. and the disconnect has been when the black community and other communities of color come to us and say, "Yeah, we're doing that too." We're working really hard. We're going to school, and it's not working for us. So that sort of is a good transition to your next read because I don't think you can have a conversation uh, with other white people unless you've got some facts to support you know, the discussion or the, or the argument, whatever you want to call it. So right. uh, you're going to read um, a section of the book, which – kind of gets into this place we call home, Charlotte, yeah. mm-hmm. and Charlotte's history, perhaps a, a darker side of Charlotte. So whenever you're ready. In 1875, Charlotte was not segregated by race or by economic status. In the period after the Civil War, poor whites and poor blacks joined in a fusion of power in the Republican Party to vote out the wealthy who had held the power. In the in the 1890s, an economic downturn and the loss of their powerful seats of leadership made the wealthy look for tactics to divide this fusion. White leadership quickly went to work to demonize African Americans and to remove voting rights using methods like poll taxes, literacy tests, and propaganda. Redlining became the federal program for approval for, for banks to invest in certain neighborhoods and to refuse loans in quote-unquote bad neighborhoods, specifically those with African Americans and immigrants. The GI Bill gave low-interest mortgages to white veterans, but African American veterans were refused access. The African American neighborhood of Brooklyn was overtaken by whites, requiring a thousand people to be displaced from their homes, businesses to close, most of which never reopened, and more than a dozen churches to be moved out of the neighborhood. Communities such as Myers Park were created as gated communities with the clear purpose of providing space for wealthy whites to live while keeping out African Americans and poor whites. So, Martha, some people would say, well, that's that's in the past, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, 
things are different now, right? But we've, we've kind of seen a, a pendulum swing in Charlotte, at least in the school system. And you've talked about this elsewhere in your book about yep. how Charlotte was somewhat progressive with integration and busing in the 70s, but then went in the reverse in the 90s. In the 90s and now mm-hmm. we have fully yep. segregated schools. Yep. Um, we also have segregated churches. And yep. so... Although, although for different reasons, and um, if you want to, we can talk about that because I think it's important for white people to understand what place the black church plays and why they shouldn't worry so much about segregated schools and I mean uh, churches and worry more about their schools. All right. Um, so, the black church in America was the one place where black leaders could have power. It's mm. the one sacred space where they made their own rules, they set their own culture, they decided everything about the system, right? And so when, when white people um, kind of, especially the ones who regarded themselves as progressives and opened their doors to black people and then to begin to realize, well, they don't want to come to our churches, what they didn't realize was you know, black people don't want to come to your church. In your church, where do they see themselves on the podium? Where do they see themselves as leaders, right? Why would they give up um, a church where they have control, where the message, the music, the, the theology, it's all, it all belongs to them and they get to shape it for one where, what, what voice can they expect to have? You know, I was thinking about, we were talking about white privilege and meritocracy earlier, and uh, when I read this, one of the things that occurred to me was this idea of how much religion and faith and God will bless us if we do certain things has been woven into our culture from mm. the founding mm. of of our country. And, you know, and all the way to Manifest Destiny, that we had this idea that we if good things happened to us, it was because we deserved it and God was right. blessing us. And if bad things happened, it meant that you were a sinner and you've done something to deserve it. And so if yep. some people don't make it in this country, it's because of something that they're doing. Now, I might not know what that is, right. but God's cursing them or yep. God's blessing them. And I do, I sense that that remains a part of our culture. So when we have a conversation, even though we have a First Amendment and you can believe whatever you want to believe or don't believe it, I still think that that part of it, that there's just a little something that thinks, well, they might deserve it. Yeah, it's deep-seated. So so you may or may not know that Job is like the oldest book we have in the Bible. It is. It's, he was pretty old himself. Too. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was It was one of the first ones written yeah. down, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, um, its date is around 1500 B.C., right? So the bad theology that the people in Job throw at Job, you must have done something that they keep saying to him. So that's one of the oldest bad theologies around. And here's this story 1,500 years before Jesus saying, that's not it. It was, that was never it. It's not about Job never did anything. He didn't do anything. And all these horrible things happened to him. It's, it's deep-seated in people that we need to believe that we deserve the good things that happen to us because that's the way we avoid the bad things, right? If if we just, you know, if we keep peddling, um, then bad things won't happen to us. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that observably that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, it, it's never true. We don't know anybody that gets what they deserve. So how do we break that in the cycle about race attitudes? I, I think that's a really great question because I think that, that first of all, acknowledging it so looking for it looking for the places where i'm i'm seeing a poor person and 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 i'm catching myself saying you must have done something you know instead of thinking what happened to hurt you in this way Mm. and and turning turning around and looking so so one of the other things um i had the really great opportunity to be with the rotary club in lynchburg last week and they wanted me to to kind of explore what's the difference between business ethics and and charitable ethics and religious ethics and all this kind of stuff and what i came to was this we all have this kind of ethic of there's bad apples right and you get rid of the bad apple and then the rest of us will be fine Mm-hmm. And, we, and we live this way, right? We just get rid of the bad apples. Instead of valuing people 
instead of saying every human is, is so valuable, they're so incredibly <coughs> valuable, whatever we have to do to salvage this one human is, is worth it. And we don't, we don't, we value property. One of the things that the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement is very, very pointed about is the way that the culture values property, the way, the way that the, the, the culture values rules over people. Yeah. And their point is, nope, nothing is more important than a human life. So black people understand because they're going through it and they've got the vestiges of it in their family history. White people don't understand because they haven't experienced it personally. How can, it, well, and, and with the idea that some of this may be, what, fake news or exaggerated mm. or mm. whatever, how can white people get other white people to put aside some of their presumptions and attitudes to more fully embrace the idea that uh, some of the things that are going on today you know, have their seeds in many steps that took place in the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah, I was really moved by the radio lab program in which the um, the chief of police in this um, Florida county, he makes every every policeman has to do a course on the history. And, and it has to be the real history of the people. So his his guidelines for when he hires somebody are, you know, I'm not going to hire a 19-year-old. I'm not going to hire somebody who doesn't have any life experience. And and if you work for the police, you're going to know the history of your people. So when you walk into a neighborhood, you're going to understand why they might hate you, even though you're trying to help them. And and those kinds of things where where we start to say to each other as a culture, yeah, we're not going to pretend like we didn't redline here in, in Charlotte. We're not going to pretend like and, – and, and denied people, right, um, the generational wealth. Mm -hmm. My grandparents owned their house. My parents owned their house. My parents paid for my college education because they owned their house, because mm. they could get loans. So I didn't have to have a student loan that it took me 20 years to pay off. So when I was 28, I was able to start paying for my house, which I will pay off in the next few months. And I'm doing that for my children, right? So one of the things by denying people 50, 75 years ago, their grandparents, denying those grandparents their house means that their parents couldn't get a house. Yeah, they couldn't get the, they don't have the equity in, That's the, in right. the house. They so. could never get the equity. And and so frankly, this, this we're still a, talking about, if you're talking about 70s and 80s, we're still talking about injustices happening, banks not loaning. So this book is a call to action, but it's not a call to action to people of color. It's, it's uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think of that scene in Moonstruck where Cher slapped the guy and said, snap out of it. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, maybe that might not be. Oh, the, I lost my hand. Yeah, that yep. might not be the appropriate way to go about it, but essentially <laughs> that's what we're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, also in the season, we have Greg Gerald on the show, and he also gave you a, uh, a nice uh, review here about uh, – you know, how the scales had fallen from your eyes. Mm. And he wrote this book called A Riff of Love. And uh, I kind of uh, poked him a little bit and said, uh, Greg, this sounds a little bit like a rant of love. You know? uh, yeah. yeah. And he, 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 he got it. He said, yeah, a little bit. That's okay. You know, yeah. because you're, you're trying to get people to pay attention, right? Right. Now, right. It, it's hard because you make this point in your book that people say, well, but, you know, I do vacation Bible school for the kids of color, and I go do this, and I go do that, which Greg calls the bus ministry. You know, yes. Which you only you clock in and you clock out, and then after that you're you go home. back in your white neighborhood. That's right. right. So how, again, um, do, do we need to carry signs? Do we need to go into people's homes? Do we need to— just keep it's a conversation is that what it is yeah it's 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 also it's also demanding of your local government that it um behave in injustice so for example i mean i'm 
I might some, piss some people off by saying this, but um, you know, I, that's right. For, you already you already did it in the book. Okay, good, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> Who's we, mad at this? I don't understand. Well, I mean, this is so. This is the thing: is we've been okay with these resegregated schools, mm-hmm. and and uh, when I went to the meetings last spring, um, there were still these parents saying, "I'm not sending my kid." over to this other school and and this thing where we put our children my i have three so let's say i take my three children and i say my three children have to always be my priority and we white parents believe that to our core our children are our priority instead of saying all of these children are our children every child in charlotte is my child that it, they are all my children, and so I I want my children I, I I want my children to have good things, but I might sacrifice a few things for my children in order that all the children get covered. Did you go to school with um, minorities when you were coming along in high school? In high school, I did. In middle school, in high school, I How did. How about you, Sarah? Yeah. So white, yeah. four thousand two hundred high school kids, and I would say we had. 40 people, mm-hmm. most of them were shipped in, and yeah. the other African-American or black people that were, let's be honest, my friends, right. were uh, culturally upper class, mm-hmm. upper class white acting kids. Mm-hmm. They right. were the, you know, now that didn't mean that parents, necess- white parents necessarily wanted those kids to date their kids, because when I was growing up in the 70s, I think there was still, I mean, it was Virginia, for goodness sake, you couldn't, right. you know, those anti-miscegenation laws had just barely been right. dissolved at, yep. when I was in high school, and parents were afraid. So I came through during the time they were integrating in the 70s in high school here, but my children uh, went to school, um, and, and they were... Uh, in a integrated school in a white neighborhood is almost 50 50 minority to, to white mm-hmm. and uh, now that same school is probably 95 percent white yep. and at the time we can re- I remember people saying my wife made her so mad that you know I'm not going to send my kids to go to school with those kids you know and I'm worried that not going to school with people of different races is going to keep people's eyes closed to other lives. Well, think about think about you know when you when you're in high school. So the great thing about that is so you're on the same team, and suddenly you have these normal opportunities. You don't have to force it. You're on the same team, and you get to know each other. Or um, you know you you have the same crappy English teacher, and so you bond over how crappy your English teacher is, or how bad the food is, or whatever. I mean, high school is a series of sufferings, and whoever <laughs> you suffer with, that's that's going to be those are going to be your people. Not every school in Charlotte Mecklenburg system is completely one no. race. Uh, no. My kids right. go to a school that is very integrated. Yes. Um, but to your point. One of my kids is on a sports team, and there are kids that on that team that are what we call EC, exceptional children now, so there's, they may have some learning disability or challenge, and they are all teammates equally, and I don't think my younger one would have had the same understanding and compassion for that. He's much more sensitive to it now by virtue of the fact that he's just on a team with them. So, so that makes a thing. difference. Yeah, that's All right. a thing. All right, so when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation of white privilege and uh, white people coming to terms with, with their own history. Um, we're going to do some more uh, discussion. We're going to get into the, uh, the theology of uh, hospitality, right? And then we're going to uh, do our author-to-author segment and talk about some more aspects of the book. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm here with uh, B.J. Murphy. He's the host of the 20-Minute Morning Show, also affiliated with the Queen City Podcast Network. How you doing, B.J.? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. Man, I like that voice. You've been a DJ for years, right? Man, about 30 years now, yeah, man. Yeah, and Charlotte, you were on the radio for uh-huh. a time? Yeah. Yeah, uh for about, uh, about nine years. Okay, tell us about the 20-Minute Morning Show. 20-Minute Morning Show is a show where you can get it raw and unfiltered. We talk about everything that's trending in America, our show is specifically uh, geared towards 25, 54-year-old African-American audience, but anybody yeah, can man, listen. Yeah, man, a white guy can listen uh, to it. Right we'd now. love to have you. Yeah, Please yeah, listen. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you can learn <laughs> some things, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we try not to uh, – it's not a, a show where we're – 
talking or bashing uh, white people. Um, yeah. But we you know we do give our opinion, and, and it's unfiltered. And you know, I've had people ask me questions about our different opinions. But I think it, it leads to a great conversation that you can have. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you kind of like milk toast mm-hmm. conversations, it's not very interesting to listen to. So we want to create dialogue. Good. Well, we can't get away from this without asking you what you read because this is a literary podcast okay. here. So what you reading, BJ? Man, Blue Ocean Strategy yeah. is a great book. Um, fell into that book on a on a trip with my family, and they were talking about the red ocean and the blue waters. And I said, you know, the blue waters is where you want to be because you want to create your own niche. Mm-hmm. We do a daily show, and I find that, you know, there are not too many daily podcasts out there of mm-hmm. high quality, so we wanted to run in that space instead of being in the bloody waters, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. Well, it, it must feel like you don't get much sleep, right? You know, well, you know, I get up at 3 a.m., yeah. and, uh, you know, it's not really work when you get a chance to do what you want to do. Exactly. So tell us how we can find your show. Uh, all the uh, platforms to host podcasts, you know, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and, of course, on our website, bjmurphyshow.com. Hey, BJ, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with Martha Kearse and also... Uh, my co-host, Sarah Vavra, and we are talking about the book, The Sun is Up, uh, One Minister's Awakening to Racial Reconciliation. There's a chapter in here, Martha, called Biblical Hospitality, A Botched Mission, and it starts out with a heading, The Theology of Hospitality. What is that? They never taught us this in Vacation Bible School, but one of the most pervasive themes of Scripture is the welcoming of the stranger. Um, it's it's throughout the Old Testament. It's throughout the New Testament. It's so core that when Jesus talks about it, he talks about it in terms of like when you, not if you, not you should, but it's like everybody all understands when a stranger comes into town, you're supposed to feed them, house them, welcome them, keep them safe. These are basics. And and um, this was part of my my doctoral work was to use this to to look at this um, theme in scripture and to kind of apply it to this idea of um, the the way we've treated people in our midst. And you've got a reading here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is this is a core verse. Um, it's from Leviticus. Leviticus nineteen thirty three through thirty four says first of all that the alien or foreigner has status in your land. He or she shall be to you as the citizen among you. In other words, this person who has not been born into your tribe still lives with your tribe and has the full rights of a citizen in your land. There are legal rights and privileges that come with citizenship, and they are offered to the alien who resides with you. Furthermore, there are some things that are not permitted for for you in regard to the alien. One, you are not permitted to hate them. You have to love them as you love yourself. Two, you are not allowed to oppress them. There is also a reason given for why you will treat them as full citizens, why you will not oppress them, and why you have to love them. Quote, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt, end quote. And in case you missed the, lo- the power behind the statement, it is signed, I am the Lord your God. Think about the first theology offered in, by the Bible. Where does everything come from? God. God is the founder, creator, builder, architect, owner, manager, operator, head honcho, and landlord of every single thing there is. That is the identity of God. Let's try another verse. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it, the world, and those who live in it. The Bible from the very beginning covers the themes of ownership and property. Everything we have, body, house, car, land, children, stocks, naming rights for a star, belongs (laughs) to God. We are borrowing the use of it all, but there is not a single thing in this world or any other that belongs to us. And like any landlord, God makes the rules. The rules are that everyone is a full citizen, that no one gets to hate anyone else for being different, and that, in fact, we are to make sure everyone else has what we have, which is what loving someone like yourself means. So, Martha, if someone parachuted into this podcast at this point where you're reading Leviticus, they might think we're about to talk about immigration. Yeah, I think yeah. it would apply. <laughs> I think you have to think um, 
<laughs> you have to think about that these days when you think about what a border is. So a border is this thing that says, so this is, this is ours to, to protect and guard. And the people behind this line are ours to protect and guard. What, what the theology... So, so, so tell us how it applies to racial reconciliation. Right. So, so once you cross into my borders, you're mine. You're mine to protect. You don't have to do anything else. So <laughs> in, with the issue, with this very specific issue of the way we have treated <coughs> people that we stole from Africa, and by, by we, we'll talk about this at some point, by we I mean us as a, as a culture, and we brought them here, mm-hmm. and instead of welcoming them, instead of bringing them across our borders where we already stole them, so we're already bad, instead of welcoming them and, and feeding them and treating them with hospitality, we brutalized them and, and killed them. I mean, breaking hospitality is, is like the kindest way to talk about our history with what we as a people have done to them as a people. So, so the, the call of theological, of, of, of biblical hospitality is once somebody moves into your space, they're yours. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story is that the angels come into Lot's house and then he is, he is obligated to protect them. So much so that he's willing to send his daughters out. So I get a little, yeah. I get a little uncomfortable with this because it's starting to feel to me a little bit like, well, now these poor black people, mm. we white people have because they're really like children. Like it's mm. really easy to go down that slippery slope and think of it as we brought these people, we stole these people. I totally agree with you, right? We stole these people. We we destroyed much of their culture when we brought them in and we enslaved them. Yeah, and but we also treated them as less than children right right? they weren't quite animals but they were less than children right and we white people act like it's up to us to save them and if we're not careful with the hospitality theology I think we can get back into that where we still think like okay you're mine as in you're mine I have to take care My of you like do I you have these kind of hecklers at your book signings I, I, I hope so yeah, um, yeah. so here's here's why <laughs> I love this book yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I am saying yeah. no I think careful. that's such a great thing yeah. so why, yeah. that's why it's important to hear this part about citizenship so what what biblical theology I think actually does is it says immediately you're not my child you're my you're you're my peer so immediately when you cross into my space, you are elevated to the status. Now, because, because strangers don't have their stuff with them, I'm obligated to feed you. But if I treat you as a citizen, you have all those rights, and so you can get a job, and you're on your own, and best of luck to you. And now you're one of us, and now, the, now we're looking, you and me together, we're looking for strangers. I think that's a really important point to point out. Doesn't it also harken back to your earlier themes that... Uh the, the theology is that you should have these uncomfortable conversations, yes. that you should tune into others' rights, that you should understand that the systems aren't necessarily fair for everyone. Yeah. Um, and maybe you ought to think about change. Yeah. 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 And, and think about what it would actually, what, it, what, it, what would it actually look like to elevate somebody's voice so that the voice that wasn't heard is now being heard? One, one of the things that I really, because um, you guys probably both know me well enough to know how much I, I like to talk and be, be <laughs> um, a, a voice in the room. So one of the disciplines of being a white person in a room with black people is to shut the hell up. And that is, it's so hard because we're so used to being heard. And elevating somebody else is not... It's not treating them like a child. It's actually acknowledging, I've been the voice for so long, it's your turn, right? It's not, it's not a gift I'm giving you. It's literally your turn. It's been your turn for a long time. I kind of think if we fired everybody in our government and we just let black and transgendered people run things for about 25 years, then we would have some kind of chance at parity at equality 
And yet, back in the 1890s, the fusion movement was doing just that. Doing just that. And then Jim Crow reared its head as a way to... Mm-hmm. To get, destroy it. Yeah. Pe- people don't like to lose their power. No Nobody one, does. No one does. Nobody, if you think that your system is being threatened, you gather around the... You circle the wagons, right? Yep. You gather around. Now, Martha, yep. you talk about some other experiences in your book. You talk about... Uh, the shooting uh, in Charlotte, uh, you talk about the Ferguson experience. Um, mm. You were a white face um, in a crowd uh, of people. Talk about the Charlotte experience because you, you really, uh, if I could sense that your voice was uh, raising itself in the book a little bit, it was when there was a part in the book where the people said, well, these were just a bunch of instigators coming in. I'm talking about the Keith yep. Lamont Scott shooting. Yep. That's just a bunch of instigators coming to town. And I could just see the the, the letters on the page got bolder, you know, when, you, <laughs> when, when they're yeah. coming out. Talk about that. Well, because because I was there. And because um, because the next day, um, because it was traumatic. Um, it was traumatic to be in my city up at the epicenter and to have the police come down in a, in a phalanx, a military phalanx, um, and at full full riot gear. Now I I don't and, think and to be clear, explain why you were there. Oh, yeah. okay. So this was um, a protest that was the two days I think after the shooting of Keith Lamont Scott, at, um, and uh, it I my involvement came through um, the Charlotte uh, Clergy Coalition for Justice, um, of which I was a member. Um, had put this call out and said, we're trying to get clergy to come to this protest. And the idea being that the, the presence of clergy would help to keep things peaceful and would give some people, you know, uh, someone to talk to when they when they felt the trauma of the moment. And what did you feel that you were protesting? Um, the protest was, uh, first of all, I, I had not come to protest. I had come to be a presence of clergy. But the protest, I think the purpose of the protest was here was an unarmed man who had been shot by police um, for what was a misdemeanor. Um, and, and really, um, it was... I think the culmination of our culture's disregard for these kinds of things that have been happening, um, you know, the, the and we don't have time to do the whole Keith Lamont Scott right. shooting and what happened, but there are all different viewpoints about whether or not the shooting was justified or non-justified or. And that's or why I, I really yeah. tried in my book to stay away from that. I have right. no information there. Right, um, but you had an experience, so now you're yep. there. And yep. your experience is? So the experience is that um, we we walk, um, we started at the Little Rock Church, and um, we walked from there to the police station, and then from there um, the, the crowd was kind of, it was raising. Um, there was certainly an angry crowd, um, and it was full of young people and old people, and people had come with their children. Um, I, saw, I saw plenty of... Um, elementary aged children, middle mm-hmm. middle school, high school aged children. And then we go up to the epicenter and the crowd is kind of dispersing. You know, one of the things I acknowledge in the book is there probably was vandalism going on. Uh, there were people going into the epicenter. There probably was vandalism. I didn't see it, but it, that would be unsurprising. So again, we're talking about property. There was property damage at that point, right? Where I was standing right there by the epicenter, I didn't see any violence. And when the police came down the road, immediately the crowd centered right in front of them. And um, the whole thing roiled up again. It was, it was dispersing. And this is an important thing about what we can do in these, in these situations. We can tell our police. We can tell our city leaders. We want all of our leaders trained to de-escalate that's we want Mm -hmm. that training we want everybody in any situation like that working to de-escalate so then the leader um from our group asked us as clergy they said we're gonna link arms and we're gonna get between the people and the police so that's what we did so then i'm you know inches away from somebody in full body armor and his face mask is down he he's not looking at me um and then i mean just things just 
went south. Mm. Um, they just they they went they went bad, and um, the police tear gassed the people. And again, I I really believe that earlier on city leaders and police coming to this group of people and saying we want to listen to you come come on let's go let's Here's go the podium that's right yeah, that's, that's right turn the microphone speeches, yeah. on let's, that's what we want to do i think that's what the people were there for they were there to be heard and by bringing in these these police and making it into a a, a confrontation the violence went up and up and up mm-hmm. well let's talk about um, this is a section of the book um, called waking up um, which is kind of tied to the theme the sun is up it involves a challenge to white people you're talking about bullies you say the bully has the loudest voice and he's not listening and you then say and this is where you sort of call out white people the bad news for white people is this we are the bullies yeah. Ah, so we're the bullies. Okay. You say we like we don't like speeding tickets. We don't like people who talk during movies. We don't like people who belong to the other political party. We don't like people who don't pull their weight. And we don't like black entertainment television. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But what you say is the thing white people hate the worst is being treated as one entity. Yeah. And you use that to make a point because the normative for white people is white. Yes. So whenever they don't talk about a person that they know who's some other color they're going to attach a color to them because it's not normal right right so well, i know this i knew this black person who right or i knew this asian who talk about that a minute the normative versus the reality yeah well um you know so this is this is an element of privilege is we get to be individuals right uh, i'm i get to be just martha so i only i only think that what i should have to carry is things i actually did right i don't have any cultural things to carry that there's no big capital w white mm-hmm. I, I just happen to be and i never you're think just, you're just martha i'm just martha right white martha not white martha that's right that's right and so this is this is an element of privilege that i don't have to think about it i don't have to carry it um and but all these other people they're in a category so a black person is not just a black person but representative of their race an asian person is not just an asian person but represent a gay person is not just a gay person but represents all gay people that ever were and ever will be and you say you say this in your book that people like to put people in boxes because it makes it easier for them to understand mm-hmm. who that person is yeah well it's a gay person so they must be like so this. they must be right it, it's a black person they must be like this that's right they're whatever and, and so it goes back to what sarah was saying when we were talking about the meritocracy well then then it's easier to say um you know if all black people are this way, then they must have this cultural thing that keeps them from being able to get the benefits. Because observably, if you work hard, then good things would happen. So they must all not be working hard enough. Um, They must all... Yeah, I was really moved by Tommy Tomlinson when he was talking about the advice people give him. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is always privilege. Yeah, right? Tommy appeared in season two of the podcast and was talking about his weight. Yes, right? yes, and one of the things he said was that people always tell tell people who are overweight, you know, eat less and exercise more. And right. he's like, "Yeah, got it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, not yeah, appreciate that. Not helpful." And I and I think this is what we believe is, um, you know, I have ADHD. And I have an endless stream of people who have said to me, you know what, Martha, just just buy a good calendar. You just need a good a good <laughs> planner. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah thanks that, for that. Yeah. Um, I have seven <laughs> planners, and I don't know where six of them are. And and so, you know, that's to, to the way that we other people, and we do it just instinctually. You're other than me, and therefore... You know, something must be wrong with you if, if things aren't working, because I'm doing it right. All right, Martha. So we're going to shift real quickly to a segment we're doing in Season 3 called Author to Author. It's uh, some questions that I'm getting uh, from previous season authors. And this this is these questions are coming from author Brooke Reynolds. She's a veterinarian who will scare you with her writing. She actually wrote uh, some horror stories we used on our Halloween episode in Season 1. So Nice. Given what we're talking about today, yes, some of this is kind of horrible, so we'll see, see what happens. <laughs> but here are her question. Racism can be a tough subject to tackle in society today. 
What made you want to write this book? I think I've had a sense most of my life that I could have friends who were black, but but it's being denied to me because of this of the things that we've done that keep us apart. So I can never quite get there and have these friends. I have all, there's all these people I could have access to, all these, all these relationships I could have that I'm, I'm missing out on because we've screwed it up. Hmm. So Brooks must have been channeling here with this next question based on our previous conversation. How do you avoid sounding condescending when writing about racism as a white person? Well, I think that's why I'm really focused on talking to white people. I mean, I I really, I, I don't have any advice for black people on this, except to say, you know, I hope that we will find a way to apologize. I hope that we will find a way to make amends. And, and I hope that one of the things about sharing this book with black people is just to say, I want you to see us doing our work. And I don't want to ask you to to weigh in unless you want to but but you should see us doing our work that's really that's really important to me her third question has writing this book changed or impacted your sermons or affected your congregation in any way (laughs) (laughs) i really feel sorry for my congregation in lynchburg god bless them they're the sweetest loveliest and really smart wonderful people and I mean, like day two, here I come in with the world's hardest issue and lay it on their table. And they mm-hmm. have um, kindly embraced it. And I can't say enough about the people of St. John's. Um, to the way that the people of St. John's uh, nurtured and loved me, saw me as a minister, and then gave me permission and, in fact, supported me in in tackling I mean, St. John's, during my time there, um, did work on HB2 and did mm-hmm. work with um, joining the Pride Parade and what we, would, what we would be publicly and stepped into some of these things. And in fact, you know, the reason I was at that event in um, Charlotte was, and, and the reason I went to Ferguson was that St. John's had these relationships with the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America and with this Charlotte um, Clergy Coalition for Justice. So, you know, uh, for it, one of the things about the job of ministry, it is, it is one of those jobs that you never do alone. You're, mm. you're never alone in it. And, and any work I do is a reflection of the people I'm doing it with. So we only have a little time left. I want you to turn if you would, um, to page 84 of the book. Um, There is a point you make here. It it, it says in here, and you're quoting a rabbi, and Mm -hmm. and it talks about the most urgent and most disgraceful, the most shameful, the most tragic problem is silence. Mm -hmm. And you use that to make a point that uh, inaction by white people that is, their silence is not helping the situation. Yeah. Do you believe that's a major part of the problem? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I, you know, bless our hearts. I, we, we were raised in a world that discouraged us from conflict, and we never learned how to have good conflict with other people. Um, our conflicts are, you know, we have one end is, is Rambo and the other end is uh, driving Miss Daisy. And, and we really believe that nice is what we are supposed to be. And decorum, you know, classiness, um, uh, this is beaten into us, the importance of the thank you note. These are what we're taught. And we're not taught how to confront our own issues, our own problems in honest, straightforward ways. We're not taught if we have a conflict with another human being, how to go to that human being and say, well, that thing you did, that, that really pissed me off. And, and then have this constructive conversation where on the other side of it, we're like, okay, great, well, problem solved, let's go have pizza. 
it's so silence is what we're stuck with and i think that this weighs on us as white people i think the problems we have with anxiety and depression and loneliness um all of them are related sarah's nodding her head absolutely (laughs) absolutely yeah they separate us because if you can't be honest if you can't genuinely talk to somebody about what your experience is with them, then you can't truly have a deep relationship with them because it puts up walls and barriers and it reinforces this, well, I did it on my own and I in and the meritocracy and if I am successful it's because of my own hard labor, which it never is. Right. But mm-hmm. but we can we can have the illusion of that. But again, it separates us, it isolates us, it and we are miserable. And the thing of it is is that white people I think are miserable because we're screaming so loud that we're going that we need to be happy. Yeah. And we're and we're working so hard to do that. So yeah. yeah. So in the in, in the end here, um, you address the question, so what are people of faith to do? You say that uh, white people bear responsibility for things from which we still gain advantages over others. And then on page 96, you offer sort of a path forward, a way of redemption. I'd like you to just read those five okay. pieces there. Fortunately for us, our faith offers us a way of redemption. One, confess our sins openly publicly honestly completely wholeheartedly without conditions or exceptions two ask forgiveness from god and from our brothers and sisters of color no amount of good work or not being racist excuses us from this three stop doing the same scubalon immediately This will mean addressing discriminating practices in our workplaces, in our cities, in our schools, and in our neighborhoods. It will mean more listening than talking. Four, make amends. Speak openly about our mistakes and about our remorse. Encourage others to do the same. Five, accept God's forgiveness and move forward. It is not the job of the black community to make us feel okay. It is their right to forgive or not to forgive as their hearts lead them. Ours is the next move, and it is to build back the trust we have broken again and again. They will know we are sorry by our love, by our love. All right, now this word, scubalon. Yeah. What is yeah. it? What is that? It means shit. Okay. <laughs> it's, okay. um, Just don't I, do that. I use it because the, the Apostle Paul uses it, and... Mm. Um, you don't get along with Paul, though, do you? No. Well, we differ on a few things. <laughs> okay. You, I think you, you prefer Jesus over Paul? Jesus but, over Paul. Yeah, That's okay. right. Now, to, to finish up, um, you've got a little uh, prayer mm. in the back of the book here. Um, and uh, since you're a minister, it seems appropriate. To, uh, you ended your book with it. Let's, let's end the podcast with okay. it. Okay. Um, Lord, let this be my prayer that I learn to be quiet and listen to my brothers and sisters who need to be heard, that I learn to speak clearly, audibly, and with compassion to my brothers and sisters who need to listen, that I work first for the safety of my brothers and sisters, and that I let the other stuff go, that I put people before property, before culture, before rules, before perception, and before personal comfort that I put away my own insecurities and grow a thick skin so I can do the work I am called to do, that I find the right words so that those who need to hear can do so, and that I learn to see the shadow of the lynching tree in the cross so I remember the one to whom I belong. Amen. 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 So where can people find your book, Martha? Um, this is available. So this is published by Smith & Hellwes. Um mm-hmm. The Smith has a Y, mm-hmm. and you can get it on their website. You can get it on Amazon. Um, Park Road Books has right. it available. Um, my local bookstore in Lynchburg, Givens Books, has them available. All right. And you can order it at your local bookstore. Great. Well, I want to thank uh, thank you, Martha, for coming today and participating in this conversation and for your book, The Sun Is Up. We've definitely, uh, Sarah, we've woken up, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Eyes wide open. Yeah, yeah. And thank you, Sarah, for being my co-host today. Well, yeah. thanks for having me. I really yeah. appreciate it, Landis yeah. and Martha. 
Yeah, thanks. Right. It's been great. Good. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. And that's also it for season three. I hope you enjoyed season three as much as I did. We had 14 episodes with 18 authors. And before we launch season four, we're going to put out a few bonus episodes. Starting next week, with an episode we recorded live at Davidson College on June the 8th, 2019. We did it in the old 900 room, which at the time I was in school was a bar. It's a little nicer now, and it turned out to be a great place to record a live podcast. It also turns out that I have three classmates who've written some interesting books. The panelists include John Gertie, who was a successful college basketball player turned college sports commissioner turned lifelong musician. He's written a nonfiction book called Baller Bands, which explores the question football versus music as an educational and community investment. And speaking of exploring, classmate Elizabeth Liz Holmes, whose talents have allowed her to navigate the worlds of prose and poetry, takes us on an adventure in her poetry book, Passing Worlds, Tahiti and the Era of Captain Cook. And finally, who better to write novels about doctors fighting for their lives in a medical suspense thriller than Hans Watford, our classmate who lives the life of a doctor every day. We find out from Hans whether Dr. Jack Harris will live to make it to book three. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast, wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. You sign up for our email list at our website. Thank you for that. We'll give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>